0: Section 24 of An American Tragedy Volume 2 by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Tatiana Cicilla. Book 3, Chapter 15. Mr. Reuben Jefferson was decidedly different from Belknap, Katchaman, Mason, Smilly—in fact, anyone, thus far, who had seen Clyde or become legally interested in this case. He was young, tall, thin, rugged, brown, cool but not cold spiritually, and with a will and a determination of the tensile strength of steel, and with the mental and legal equipment for which shrewdness and self-interest was not unlike that of a lynx or a ferret, those shrewd, steel, very light blue eyes in his brown face, the force and curiosity of the long nose, the strength of the hands and the body. He had lost no time as soon as he discovered there was a possibility of there, Belknap and Jepson, taking over the defense of Clyde, In going over the minutes of the coroner's inquest as well as the doctor's reports and the letters of roberta and sandra and now being faced by belknap who was explaining that clyde did now actually admit to having plotted to kill roberta although not to having actually done so since at the fatal moment some cataleptic state of mind or remorse had intervened and caused him to unintentionally strike her he merely stared without the shadow of a smile or comment of any kind But he wasn't in such a state when he went out there with her, though. No. Nor when he swam away afterwards. No. Nor when he went through the woods, or changed to another suit and hat, or hid that tripod. No. Of course, you know, constructively, in the eyes of the law, if we use his own story, he's just as guilty as though he had struck her, and the judge would have to so instruct. Yes, I know, I've thought of all that. Well, then— "'Well, I'll tell you, Jeffson, it's a tough case and no mistake. "'It looks to me now as though Mason has all the cards. "'If we can get this chap off, we can get anybody off. "'But as I see it, I'm not so sure that we want to mention that cataleptic business yet. "'At least not unless we want to enter a plea of insanity or emotional insanity or something like that. "'About like that hairy Thaw case, for instance.' "'He paused and scratched his slightly graying temple dubiously. "'You think he's guilty, of course?' "'interpolated Jeffson, dryly. "'Well, now, as astonishing as it may seem to you, no. "'At least I'm not positive that I do. "'To tell you the truth, this is one of the most puzzling cases "'I have ever run up against. "'This fellow is by no means as hard as you think, or as cold. "'Quite a simple, affectionate chap, in a way, as you'll see for yourself. "'His manner, I mean. "'He's only twenty-one or two. "'And for all his connections with these Griffiths, he's very poor. "'Just a clerk, really. "'And he tells me that his parents are poor, too.' They run a kind of mission out west, Denver, I believe, and before that in Kansas City. He hasn't been home in four years. In fact, he got into some crazy boy scrape out there in Kansas City when he was working for one of the hotels as a bellboy and had to run away. That's something we've got to look out for in connection with Mason, whether he knows about that or not. It seems he and a bunch of other bellhops took some rich fellow's car without his knowing it, and then because they were afraid of being late, they ran over and killed a little girl. We've got to find out about that and prepare for it, for if Mason does know about it, he'll spring it at the trial, and just when he thinks we're least expecting it. Well, he won't pull that one, replied Jefferson, his hard, electric blue eyes gleaming, not if I have to go to Kansas City to find out. And Belknap went on to tell Jefferson all that he knew about Clyde's life up to the present time, how he had worked at dishwashing, waiting on table, soda clerking, driving a wagon, anything and everything before he had arrived in Lycurgus how he had always been fascinated by girls, how he had first met Roberta, and later Sandra. Finally, how he found himself trapped by one and desperately in love with the other, whom he could not have unless he got rid of the first one. "'And notwithstanding all that, you feel a doubt as to whether he did kill her,' asked Jeffson at the conclusion of all this. "'Yes, as I say, I am not at all sure that he did. But I do know that he is still hipped over the second girl. His manner changed whenever he or I happened to mention her.' Once, for instance, I asked him about his relations with her, and in spite of the fact that he's accused of seducing and killing this other girl, he looked at me as though I had said something I shouldn't have—insulted him or her. And here Belknap smiled a wry smile, while Jeffson, his long, bony legs propped against the walnut desk before him, merely stared at him. "'You don't say,' he finally observed. "'And not only that,' went on Belknap, but he said— "'Why, no, of course not. She wouldn't allow anything like that. And besides—' And then he stopped. "'And besides what, Clyde?' I asked. "'Well, you don't want to forget who she is.' "'Oh, I see,' I said. "'And then, will you believe it? He wanted to know if there wasn't some way by which her name and those letters she wrote him couldn't be kept out of the papers, in this case, her family prevented from knowing so that she and they wouldn't be hurt too much.' "'Not really? But what about the other girl?' That's just the point I'm trying to make. He could plot to kill one girl, and maybe even did kill her, for all I know, after seducing her, but because he was being so sculled around by his grand ideas of this other girl, he didn't quite know what he was doing, really. Don't you see? You know how it is with some of these young fellows of his age, and especially when they've never had anything much to do with girls or money and want to be something grand. You think that made him a little crazy, maybe? Put in Jephson Well, it's possible confused, hypnotized, loony, you know, a brainstorm, as they say down in New York. But he certainly is still cracked over that other girl. In fact, I think most of his crying in jail is over her. He was crying, you know, when I went to see him, sobbing as if his heart might break. Meditatively, Belknap scratched his right ear. But just the same, there certainly is something to this other idea, that his mind was turned by all this— That Alden girl forcing him on the one hand to marry her while the other girl was offering to marry him? I know. I was once in such a scrape myself. And here he paused to relate that to Jeffson. By the way, he went on, he says we can find that item about the other couple drowning in the Times Union of about June 18th or 19th. All right, replied Jeffson. I'll get it. What I want you to do tomorrow, continued Belknap, is to go over there with me and see what impression you get of him. "'I'll be there to see if he tells it all to you in the same way. "'I want your own individual viewpoint of him.' "'You most certainly will get it,' snapped Jeffson. Belknap and Jeffson proceeded the next day to visit Clyde in jail, and Jeffson, after interviewing him and meditating once more on his strange story, was even then not quite able to make up his mind whether Clyde was as innocent of intending to strike Roberta as he said or not. For if he were, how could he have swum away afterward, leaving her to drown?' Decidedly, it would be more difficult for a jury than for himself even to be convinced. At the same time, there was that contention of Belknap's as to the possibility of Clyde's having been mentally upset or unbalanced at the time that he accepted the Times-Union plot and proceeded to act on it. That might be true, of course. Yet personally, to Jefferson at least, Clyde appeared to be wise and sane enough now. As Jefferson saw him, he was harder and more cunning than Belknap was willing to believe. A cunning, modified, of course by certain soft and winning social graces, for which one could hardly help liking him. However, Clyde was by no means as willing to confide in Jeffson as he had been in Belknap, an attitude which did little to attract Jeffson to him at first. At the same time, there was about Jeffson a hard, integrated earnestness, which soon convinced Clyde of his technical, if not his emotional, interest. And after a while, he began looking toward this younger man, even more than toward Belknap, as the one who might do most for him, "'Of course, you know that those letters which Miss Alden wrote you are very strong,' began Jefferson, after hearing Clyde restate his story. "'Yes, sir. "'They're very sad to anyone who doesn't know all of the facts, "'and on that account they are likely to prejudice any jury against you, "'especially when they're put alongside Miss Finchley's letters.' "'Yes, I suppose they might,' replied Clyde. "'But then she wasn't always like that, either. "'It was only after she got in trouble and I wanted her to let me go that she wrote like that.' I know, I know, and that's a point we want to think about and maybe bring out if we can. If only there was some way to keep those letters out, he now turned to Belknap to say. Then to Clyde. But what I want to ask you now is this. You were close to her for something like a year, weren't you? Yes. And all of that time that you were with her, or before, was she ever friendly or maybe intimate with any other young man anywhere? That is, that you know of? As Clyde could see, Jefferson was not afraid, or perhaps not sufficiently sensitive, to refrain from presenting any thought or trick that seemed to him likely to provide a loophole for escape. But far from being cheered by this suggestion, he was really shocked. What a shameful thing in connection with Roberta and her character it would be to attempt to introduce any such lie as this. He could not and would not hint at any such falsehood, and so he replied, No, sir, I never heard of her going with anyone else. In fact, I know she didn't. Very good. That settles that. Snapped Jeffson. I judge from her letters that what you say is true. At the same time, we must know all the facts. It might make a very great difference if there were someone else. And at this point, Clyde could not quite make sure whether he was attempting to impress upon him the value of this as an idea or not. But just the same, he decided it was not right even to consider it. And yet he was thinking, if only this man could think of a real defense for me. He looks so shrewd. Well then went on Jeffson, in the same hard, searching tone, devoid, as Clyde saw it, of sentiment or pity of any kind. Here's something else I want to ask you. In all the time that you knew her, either before you were intimate with her or afterwards, did she ever write you a mean or sarcastic or demanding or threatening letter of any kind? No, sir, I can't say that she ever did, replied Clyde. In fact, I know she didn't. No, sir, except for those last few ones, maybe. The very last one. "'And you never wrote her any, I suppose?' "'No, sir, I never wrote her any letters.' "'Why?' "'Well, she was right there in the factory with me, you see. Besides, at the last there, after she went home, I was afraid to.' "'I see.' At the same time, as Clyde now proceeded to point out, and that, quite honestly, Roberta could be far from sweet-tempered at times, could in fact be quite determined and even stubborn." and she had paid no least attention to his plea that her forcing him to marry her now would ruin him socially, as well as in every other way, and that even in the face of his willingness to work along and pay for her support, an attitude which, as he now described it, was what had caused all the trouble, whereas Miss Finchley—and here he introduced an element of reverence and enthusiasm which Jeffson was quick to note—was willing to do everything for him. So you really loved that Miss Finchley very much, then, did you? Yes, sir. "'And you couldn't care for Roberta any more after you met her?' "'No, no, I just couldn't.' "'I see,' observed Jeffson, solemnly nodding his head, "'and at the same time meditating on how futile and dangerous, even, "'it might be to let the jury know that, "'and then thinking that possibly it were best to follow the previous suggestion of Belknaps, "'based on the customary legal proceeding of the time, "'and claim insanity or a brainstorm brought about by the terrifying position "'in which he imagined himself to be.' but apart from that, he now proceeded. You say something came over you when you were in the boat out there with her on that last day, that you really didn't know what you were doing at the time that you struck her? Yes, sir, that's the truth. And here Clyde went on to explain once more just what his state was at that time. All right, all right, I believe you, replied Jeffson, seemingly believing what Clyde said, but not actually able to conceive it at that. But you know, of course, that no jury, in the face of all these other circumstances, is going to believe that, he now announced. There are too many things that'll have to be explained, and that we can't very well explain as things now stand. I don't know about that idea. He now turned and was addressing Belknap. Those two hats, that bag, unless we're going to plead insanity or something like that, I'm not so sure about all this. Was there ever any insanity in your family that you know of? He now added, turning to Clyde once more. "'No, sir, not that I know of. "'No uncle or cousin or grandfather who had fits or strange ideas or anything like that? "'Not that I ever heard of, no, sir. "'And your rich relatives down there in Lycurgus. "'I suppose they'd not like it very much if I were to step up and try to prove something like that.' "'I'm afraid they wouldn't. "'No, sir,' replied Clyde, thinking of Gilbert. "'Well, let me see,' went on Jeffson after a time. "'That makes it rather hard.' i don't see though that anything else would be safe and here he turned once more to belknap and began to inquire as to what he thought of suicide as a theory since roberta's letters themselves showed a melancholy trend which might easily have led to thoughts of suicide and could they not say that once out on the lake with clyde and pleading with him to marry her and he refusing to do so she had jumped overboard and he was too astounded and mentally upset to try to save her "'But what about his own story that the wind had blown his hat off, "'and in trying to save that he upset the boat?' interjected Belknap, "'and exactly as though Clyde were not present. "'Well, that's true enough, too, but couldn't we say that, perhaps, "'since he was morally responsible for her condition, "'which in turn had caused her to take her life, "'he did not want to confess to the truth of her suicide?' "'At this Clyde winced, but neither now troubled to notice him. "'They talked as though he was not present or could have no opinion in the matter.' a procedure which astonished but by no means moved him to object, since he was feeling so helpless. "'But the false registrations, the two hats, the suit, his bag,' insisted Belknap staccatically, a tone which showed Clyde how serious Belknap considered his predicament to be. "'Well, whatever theory we advance, those things will have to be accounted for in some way,' replied Jeffson dubiously. "'We can't admit the true story of his plotting without an insanity plea, not as I see it, at any rate.' and unless we use that, we've got that evidence to deal with whatever we do. He threw up his hands wearily and as if to say, I swear I don't know what to do about this. But, persisted Belknap, in the face of all that, and his refusal to marry her, after his promises referred to in her letters, why, it would only react against him, so that public opinion would be more prejudiced against him than ever. No, that won't do, he concluded. We'll have to think of something which will create some sort of sympathy for him. And then, once more turning to Clyde as though there had been no such discussion, and looking at him as much as to say, "'You are a problem, indeed,' and then Jeffson, observing. "'And—oh, yes, that suit you dropped in that lake up there near the Cranstons. Describe the spot to me as near as you can where you threw it. How far from the house was it?' He waited until Clyde haltingly attempted to recapture the various details of the hour and the scene as he could remember it. "'If I could go up there, I could find it quick enough.' "'Yes, I know, but they won't let you go up there without Mason being along,' he returned. "'And maybe not even then. You're in prison now, and you can't be taken out without the state's consent, you see. But we must get that suit.' Then, turning to Belknap and lowering his voice, he added, "'We want to get it and have it cleaned, and submit it as having been sent away to be cleaned by him, not hidden, you see.' "'Yes, that's so,' commented Belknap idly while Clyde stood listening curiously and a little amazed by this frank program of trickery and deception on his behalf. And now, in regard to that camera that fell in the lake, we have to try and find that, too. I think maybe Mason may know about it or suspect that it's there. At any rate, it's very important that we should find it before he does. You think that about where that pole was that day you were up there is where the boat was when it overturned? Yes, sir. Well, we must see if we can get that, he continued, turning to Belknap. We don't want that turning up in the trial if we can help it, for without that they'll have to be swearing that he struck her with that tripod or something that he didn't, and that's where we may trip him up. Yes, that's true too, replied Belknap. And now, in regard to the bag that Mason has, that's another thing I haven't seen yet, but I will see it tomorrow. Did you put that suit, as wet as it was, in the bag when you came out of the water? No, sir, I wrung it out first, and then I dried it as much as I could— and then I wrapped it up in the paper that we had the lunch in, and then put some dry pine needles underneath it in the bag and on top of it. So there weren't any wet marks in the bag after you took it out, as far as you know? No, sir, I don't think so. But you're not sure? Not exactly sure now that you ask me. No, sir. Well, I'll see for myself tomorrow. And now, as to those marks on her face, you have never admitted to anyone around here or anywhere that you struck her in any way? No, sir and the mark on the top of her head was made by the boat, just as you said. Yes, sir. But the others you think you might have made with the camera? Yes, sir, I suppose they were. Well then, this is the way it looks to me, said Jeffson, again turning to Belknap. I think we can safely say when the time comes that those marks were never made by him at all, see, but by the hooks and the poles with which they were scraping around up there when they were trying to find her. We can try it, anyhow, and if the hooks and poles didn't do it— he added a little grimly and dryly certainly hauling her body from that lake to that railroad station and from there to here on the train might have yes i think mason would have a hard time proving that they weren't made that way replied belknap and as for that tripod well we'd better exhume the body and make our own measurements and measure the thickness of the edge of the boat so that it may not be easy for mason to make any use of the tripod now that he has it after all Mr. Jefferson's eyes were small, and very clear, and very blue, as he said this. His head, as well as his body, had a thin, ferrety look, and it seemed to Clyde, who had been observing and listening to all this with awe, that this younger man might be the one to aid him. He was so shrewd and practical, so very direct and chill and indifferent, and yet confidence-inspiring, quite like an uncontrollable machine of a kind which generates power. And when at last these two were ready to go, he was sorry— for with them near him, planning and plotting in regard to himself, he felt so much safer, stronger, more hopeful, more certain of being free, maybe, at some future date. End of Book 3, Chapter 15